I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 15 says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Now this fifth chapter begins with an exhortation to imitate God as beloved children. In verses 2 to 7, we're told to walk in love in contrast to the world's counterfeit love. In verses 8 to 14, we're told to walk as children of light in contrast to the darkness. And here in verses 15 to 17, we're to walk in wisdom in contrast to those who are unwise, or as he says in verse 17, to the foolish. Now, Paul is not using those terms, wise and foolish, in the same sense that we might hear them used today. Someone might say, well, Donald Trump is wise because he built a fortune out of nothing. Albert Camus was wise because he was a noted philosopher. You see, the Bible doesn't speak about wisdom and foolishness in that same way. When the Bible talks about a person who is wise, the Bible is talking about someone who sees things from God's perspective and therefore lives in harmony with God. A fool is someone who sees things from his own perspective and therefore exists apart from God. And Scripture gives us a very clear portrait of a fool. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Now that is the epitome of a fool. He doesn't just say it to other people. He says it in his heart. He says it to himself. He has convinced himself that there is no God. But the Bible doesn't stop there in the description. Because it's not simply the person who thinks there is no God who is a fool. It's the person who knows there is a God and acts like there isn't. Romans chapter 1 and verse 21 says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So you can say there is no God in your heart. You can say there is no God with your mouth. Or you can say there is no God with your actions. In fact, if we were going to rate fools, I think the greater fool would have to be the one who knows God is there and acts like he's not. So a fool denies the existence of God either theoretically or practically, but having denied God, what's interesting is he still worships because God has created us as worshiping beings. Who does he worship? Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. And Romans chapter 1 says he worships the creature rather than the creator. Having taken God off the throne, he puts himself on it. You say, well, how could he do that? Proverbs 14.3 says, In the mouth of the foolish is a rod of pride. You see, the root problem is not intellectual. The root problem is pride. He refuses to humble himself before God. And so he denies his existence. You say, well, we need to tell this person about the condition they're in. Well, Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. He's not going to listen to correction because he thinks he's right. And if you talk to a fool, oftentimes he has many arguments that will satisfy him about his position. The portrait continues in Proverbs 14, 9. It says, Fools mock at sin. This is one of their favorite sports. To deal with the guilt, they make jokes about it. And then it's kind of summed up in Proverbs 15, too, where it says, the mouth of fools 
spouts folly. They're like a fountain. And the only thing coming out is foolishness. And so there's the portrait of a fool. He says in his heart there is no God. He acts like there's no God. He trusts in himself. He's right in his own eyes. He mocks at sin and he spreads foolishness whenever he speaks. The fool exists apart from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 says, He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He has the most important things in life reversed. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, When he hears the preaching of the cross, he considers it foolishness. He's so twisted around in his thinking that he looks at the wisdom of God and he says, That's foolish. Now, if I said to you this morning that I don't see anything in Beethoven, that I, you know, I hear that and I think the guy just threw notes together. Any two-year-old could have done it. Well, if I said that this morning, that would not tell you a whole lot about Beethoven. That would tell you a whole lot about me, that I'm musically illiterate. And when a person says there is no God and he mocks God's handiwork that doesn't tell us anything about God it tells us very much about that person and the Bible says that that person is a fool now foolishness is not a rare attribute today we live in a world of fools in fact as you sit here this morning you either are a fool or you were a fool there's only two categories the Bible says in Proverbs twenty-two fifteen, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And so every one of us is born with a terminal case of foolishness. And our society seems determined to keep it there. And so in our schools, evolution, which says there is no God, is taught while creation is a taboo. And prayer is a taboo. You say, well, how do we get from present tense, I am a fool, to past tense, I was a fool. Well, Paul tells Timothy that in 2 Timothy 3.15. He says, from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. God's Word gives us wisdom that leads us to salvation, and then as a believer in Christ, I am no longer a fool, I am now wise. Why? Because I'm in Christ. And Paul said in Colossians 2.3 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I come into Christ and in Christ I find all the treasures of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, You are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom. If you're a believer in Christ today, you are wise. And so Paul says to you in verse 15, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Be careful. That word means be diligent, be accurate, be precise. It's the idea of examining and investigating something very closely. In fact, it's the word used by Herod when he spoke to the wise men in Matthew 2, 8, and he said to them, make careful search for the child. It's the word used by Luke in the preface of his gospel, Luke 1.3, where he says that he has investigated everything carefully. In our walk as Christians, we are to walk carefully. We're to be alertly looking around. 
We can't live carelessly. We can't meander through life. We can't leave things up to chance. Paul says we're to walk carefully. Now, it's a shame that many of us as Christians are more careful about our jobs, about our schoolwork, about our car, about our house cleaning, about our own physical fitness, about our appearance, about our clothes, about our makeup, than we are about our walk with the Lord. Paul says we are to walk carefully. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 14, the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. We walk a narrow path. And Paul says we are to walk carefully. You see, even though I am wise, Paul says in verse 15 that I need to be careful because I can walk like I'm unwise. And he says in verse 17, do not be foolish. Now that tells me that as a Christian, I can walk like a fool. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have to give us this exhortation. He wouldn't have to give us this warning. Now, how does a Christian walk like a fool? Remember in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus had risen from the dead and he was walking on the road to Emmaus, to Emmaus with the two disciples, he turned to them in verse 25 and he said, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Jesus said they were foolish. Why? Because they didn't believe God's word. You want to be a fool? Just don't believe God's word. You ever heard a Christian say, I know God's word says that, but you're walking like a fool. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul wrote to the Galatians and said, O foolish Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You started out by grace and now you're trying to grow by legalism. You're saying, God, thanks for saving me, but I can take it from here. And Paul says that's foolishness. Why? Because they were not depending upon the Lord. In 1 Timothy 6, 9, Paul speaks about foolish desires which plunge men into ruin. And the prominent foolish desire that he mentions is wanting to get rich. In Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and a foolish desire is saying, I'm not interested in that. I want to go after material things. And so we walk in foolishness when we desire the wrong things. James said in James 3, 13 to 17, Who among you is wise? Let him show it by his good behavior in the gentleness of wisdom. If you're wise, you'll show it by your deeds. And then after that, he says the very opposite. If you're foolish or if you have the wisdom of this world, you'll show that by your deeds as well. And he mentions things such as jealousy and selfish ambition. So I, as a Christian, even though I'm wise, can play the fool. By not believing God, by not depending upon God, by desiring the wrong things, and by doing the wrong things. And so Paul exhorts us to walk carefully, not as unwise, but as wise. You say, well, what is the wise walk? Well, Paul gives us two characteristics of it in verses 16 and 17. The first characteristic is in verse 16 making the most of your time because the days are evil. The wise person makes the most of his time. 1 Corinthians 7.29 says the time is short. 
David said in Psalm 39.5, Behold, thou hast made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in thy sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. And James said in James chapter 4, You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. First time I taught on the book of Ephesians was 15 years ago. And I was going through some of my old notes on this passage, and, and in the margin of the notes, I wrote this. I'm 28, and it seems like just yesterday I was 18. Well, now I'm 43, and it seems like just yesterday that I was 28. Time is short. Time flies by. And time is funny. You can't use yesterday... And you can't use tomorrow, and you can't use sometime. You can only use now. Everybody has 24 hours in a day. Some people seem to accomplish more than others because they realize that the time is short, and they do it now. Here's an ad that appeared in the newspaper. Lost yesterday, sometime between sunrise and sunset, two golden hours each set with 60 diamond minutes, no reward offered, for they are gone forever. That's the way time is. It goes by. And once it's gone, it's gone. It's so funny because sometimes you ask Christians, what are you doing? And they'll say, just wasting time. I'm just killing time. Paul says, the wise man makes the most of his time. The King James Version has the word redeeming. That's a more accurate word here because the Greek word means buying out. Paul says we live in evil days and we are to be buying time out of those evil days for good and for God. But the word time is an interesting word too. It's not the normal word chronos from which we get chronological. It's not the word time that means tick, tick, tick. It's the word karos, which means a quality of time or an opportunity. The Greeks had a statue that looked very much like a man, only it had wings on its feet, and its head was totally bald, except it had a forelock on the front of its head. And on the bottom were written a number of questions asked to the statue to which he answered. Who made you? Lysippus made me. What is your name? Opportunity. Why do you have wings on your feet? So that I might fly away swiftly. Why do you have a forelock? That men may seize me when I come. Why are you bald in the back? So when I am gone by, none may lay hold of me. That's opportunity. When it comes, if we don't grab it, it's gone forever. You have a limited amount of time. Are you grabbing the opportunities? Are you buying out the time from these evil days for God's glory and for good? You know, Christians sometimes say, well, I'm going to spend more time in God's Word. I'm going to start praying more. I'm going to start witnessing. I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to get involved in that ministry. 
Paul would say, let's stop talking about it and start grabbing the opportunities. Start buying out the time for God. Implied in buying up the time is a price. We use that idea. We say, I spend time. If we're going to buy out time for God, we're going to have to give up time for something else. It's a trade-off. We're going to have to give up some harmful things. We're going to have to give up some meaningless things in order to invest our time in that which is eternal. And that's one of the amazing things about time. It's flying by, but when we grab the opportunities, we can take these moments in time and maximize them with eternal consequences. And that's what Paul is challenging us to do. The wise person buys out the time for God's glory. Jonathan Edwards wrote 70 resolutions, which he read over every week of his life. They're now published. His fifth resolution was this, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. And then the seventh resolution was this, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. He wanted to make every minute count, and he wanted to treat every minute like it was his last. Jonathan Edwards was a wise man. Because Paul says, the wise man is aware that time is short, He's aware that the days are evil and he's buying up the time. He's grabbing the opportunities for good and for God. You say, well, what should I do with my time? What is the best use of my time? Well, Paul answers that in the next characteristic of the wise walk, which is in verse 17. He says, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The wise person understands what the will of the Lord is. Now, that's funny. Because I ask Christians oftentimes, do you know what God's will is for you? And they say, I don't know. In fact, I bet if we ask ten Christians, what's God's will? More than half of them would say, I don't know. And they seem to have the idea that God's will is sort of a detailed blueprint for my life. And if I miss it at any juncture, I'm going to end up in deep weeds. And that idea seems to coincide with an idea that God is making it very vague to us what that will is. I get the impression from some Christians that God is sort of like the cosmic Easter bunny. He's hidden his will under a bush, and he's saying to us, you're getting warmer. You're getting warmer. And I think it leads some Christians to some weird approaches to finding God's will. You know, it's almost like some people use the Bible as a Ouija board. They, they open their Bible, close their eyes, and point at verses to see if God will say something to them. heard about one fellow who did that. He opened his Bible and he read the verse, Judas went out and hanged himself. He said, well, that can't be it. So he turned over a page and pointed again and said, uh, go thou and do likewise. He said, well, that can't be it. So he turned back again and he pointed again and said, what you do, do quickly. Or the missionary who was in Morocco and they asked him how the Lord led him to Morocco and he said, well, I opened to the front cover of my Bible and it said, genuine Morocco. 
See, I have a problem with that idea of the will of God. One problem is that it tends to become an excuse for complacency. You find a lot of Christians just sitting around doing nothing while they're searching for the will of God. It's like they're waiting till they walk down the street one day and slip on a banana peel and fall on a map of Africa and say, oh, God wants me to go to Africa. But meanwhile, I'm content to do nothing while I search for the will of God. You see, I have a problem with that in light of what Paul says in verse 17. Because Paul says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So if you don't understand what the will of the Lord is, what does Paul say you are? Foolish. What's another word for foolish? Stupid. So he doesn't say you're searching. He doesn't say you're getting warmer. He says you are foolish. So whatever God's will is, it must be clearly laid out for us. And of course, the place we would expect God to clearly lay it out is His Word. Now, all of God's Word is really the will of God, but there are certain verses in Scripture that say specifically, this is God's will for you. And this morning, I want to show you seven verses that say that. Seven verses that describe God's specific will for you. The first one is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And I want you to turn to these so they'll stick in your mind. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That word desires is the same word as wills. God wills that all men would be saved. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I can tell you what God's will is for you. God's will is that you be saved. Second thing we can say about God's will is back in the passage in Ephesians chapter 5. If you look at our passage again, he says in verse 17, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then the very next thing he says in verse 18 is, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. God's will is that you be spirit-filled. Now, if you're not sure what that means, come back next week because we're going to talk about it in the next couple weeks. But God's will for us is that, number one, you be saved. Number two, that you be spirit-filled. Third thing we can learn from Scripture is in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. These are verses you ought to have memorized. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You prove out the will of God in your life, Paul says, when you present your bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. What is that? That is surrendering yourself to God. So God's will for you is that you be saved, spirit-filled, surrendered. Fourth thing is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Verse 3 begins, For this is the will of God. Now, you can't get any clearer than that. This is the will of God. What is it? Your sanctification. That's a big word that means that you be separated from the world around you. God's will is that you be separated. And then he gets even more specific. He says, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. What is God's will for you? It is that you be separated from the world around you and the specific area he's talking about is sexual immorality, that you stay away from those things, that you walk differently from that. And so God's will is that we be saved, spirit-filled, surrendered, sanctified. And then there's a fifth thing. That's in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 15. Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and to the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God. What's God's will? That you be submissive. That you be submissive to all those in authority over you. He says, to kings. In our case, it would be to presidents. Whether they're Republican or Democrat doesn't matter. You be submissive to all those who are in authority over you. So what's God's will? That you be saved, spirit-filled, surrendered, sanctified, submissive. And then he gives us a sixth thing also in 1 Peter. It's in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19. 1 Peter 4, 19. Therefore let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Did you get that? You may not like it, but did you get it? He says we suffer according to the will of God. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And it's God's will. And he says when that suffering does come, it's also God's will that we commit ourselves to Him in the midst of that suffering. So what's God's will for us? That we be saved, spirit-filled, surrendered, sanctified, submissive, suffering. And then there's one more. That's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. Paul says, In everything give thanks... For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. There it is. God's will for you is that you be saved, spirit-filled, surrendered, sanctified, submissive, suffering, and saying thanks. You say, well, that doesn't tell me what school to go to. And that doesn't tell me what job to take. Well, let me say this, and understand it as I say it. If you are saved, spirit-filled, surrendered, sanctified, submissive, suffering, and saying thanks, you can do whatever you want. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. If you delight yourself in the Lord... If you do these things that he says is his will for you, 
then your desires will be lined up with God's desires. You will share the same desires. And what you desire to do will be God's will for you. See, a lot of Christians spend most of their life worrying about whether they're in the the right job or not. Worrying whether they're living in the right city or not. I am convinced that that is not God's chief concern for you. I'm convinced He's concerned about it, but it's not His chief concern for you. You see, if you're not saved, spirit-filled, surrendered, sanctified, submissive, suffering, and saying thanks in Cape Girardeau, why would He move you somewhere else? See, my point is this. Don't spend all your energy searching for the will of God. Spend your energy doing God's will that He's already told you. You see, you will be where God wants you to be if you are doing what God wants you to do. He will have no trouble guiding you if you are already doing those things that He has told you to do. If you're not doing these things, then don't worry about whether you're in the right job or not. That's the least of your priorities. Because you see, if you are doing these things, you are walking in wisdom. And wisdom is having God's perspective. And you will not make a wrong step. So God has taken us out of foolishness. He has made us wise in Christ. And Paul says, let's walk like it. Bind up the time and understanding the will of God.